0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Oddity Podity Podcast. I know that you can tell from this accent that it's me, your host, Tana. I also know that you can tell from my accent that I'm from the Deep South, smack in the middle of the Bible Belt, actually. So it's not a surprise that I was raised in a Baptist church, and I've read the Bible probably cover to cover and maybe more than once. So it's interesting to me to see all of these people suddenly citing the book of Revelation on social media and claiming that the COVID-19 vaccine is, in fact, the mark of the beast. If you've actually read the verses in Revelation that mention the mark of the beast, you'll know that all those goofy memes make no sense. The Bible is very specific about what the mark is, and it's definitely not a vaccine. However, in its specificity, the Bible does give some very strong clues about who the beast and what the mark actually is. And when you look at history and some of the real life monsters who once walked among us, the answers to the mysteries in the book of Revelation become all too clear. months ago, I received a cryptic meme in my Facebook Messenger. It had five letters listed in a column with a number that corresponded to each. The letters spelled out C-O-V-I-D and the numbers were added up at the bottom of the page. They equaled 666, the mark of the beast. First off, those numbers actually added up to 667. Second, if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that the virus or vaccine, it doesn't fit at all with what the mark is supposed to be. But it seems like anytime something is going on that people don't like, they start yelling that this person or that person is the Antichrist or this thing or that thing is the mark of the beast. Where did this idea come from and what does it all mean? In today's episode, I'm going to tell you where it came from, the history behind it, and what I think it means. Because for pretty much all of my life, people have been saying that we are living in end times. End times is taking forever, you guys. I probably shouldn't joke about that. Anyway, the first Antichrist I recall in my lifetime was my brother. Then it was Ozzy Osbourne in the 80s. And that was either before or after the band Striper. I can't remember. I think Marilyn Manson was the Antichrist once, too. And don't even get me started on Mark of the Beast. The mark has been debit cards, grocery store barcodes, cell phones, body piercings, and even that one tattoo I got while drinking in New Orleans. As a disclaimer up front, I'm no Bible scholar, but like I said, I've read the book. I did rely on actual Bible scholars and historians for a lot of the historical material in this episode, though, and I posted the links of those articles in the show notes. But the majority of what I'm about to tell you comes from the Bible itself. The Antichrist actually comes from the book of John. He's only mentioned in three passages, and he's essentially Jesus's evil twin, a hot, hot mess who comes into complete world power and sits on a throne in Jerusalem. I don't recall that happening, so I don't think he's here yet. But all that Antichrist stuff happens way before the book of Revelation, which is where the Mark of the Beast is mentioned. If you've never read the book of Revelation, I put a link in the show notes as well to an article on PBS.org that's very helpful in explaining it because it's a tough read. But since you're already here, let me give you the notes. The book of Revelation is basically a fever dream told by a guy named John and might be best understood after eating some psychedelic mushrooms. It is the wildness, y'all. So this John guy, he's a Christian from Rome, and he's chilling out on this island one day when this voice comes out of nowhere. Yo, John, it says, grab a pen and a scratch pad. I'm about to blow your mind. That's a direct quote. No, I'm kidding. The voice was Jesus, and he was about to show John a glimpse of the future, and he wanted him to take notes. That day, John had five visions or revelations about what's going to happen in the future. In a nutshell, humanity is about to beef it in the most heinous way, beginning with the arrival of four horsemen who will bring plague, famine, war, and then finally, sweet, sweet death. We're not going to get into everything those killer cowboys did because that would be a six hour long podcast. What we want to focus on today is this mark of the beast business. That comes near the end of the world when a seven headed beast and his wingman, who's also a beast, are sent to earth from Satan. In order to buy or sell anything, you must willingly pledge your allegiance to Mr. Seven Heads and take a mark on your right palm or your forehead to prove it. But here's the kicker to the whole thing. The children of God, the true believers, will be taken to heaven during the rapture before any of this happens. Yeah, the true believers of Christ won't even be around for any of this. So what are you guys all worried about? Are you hiding something? Tell me what it is. Okay, you don't have to tell me. But for whatever reason you might be worried, don't be. The Bible clearly states that you must be willing to accept the mark so you're not going to end up taking out an accident, like being tricked when someone sneaks in into a vaccine. Also, you'll knowingly pledge allegiance to the beast when you take the mark. Trust me, I've had two shots and a booster, and not once was I required to pledge anything to anyone. I didn't even have to pay for it. Also, the mark will be placed in your right hand or on your forehead for all to see. Not in your upper deltoid and hidden in your muscle tissue like the vaccine is. So, don't twist the Bible's words so you can make a meme that will scare your friends and get you some likes on Facebook. Come on, you guys, cut it out. Seriously. Now that we've got that Mark stuff cleared up, let's look at the beast and who he is. Or more accurately, who and what he represents. In order to do that, we need history as a backdrop. Because for some of us modern peeps, John's notes are difficult to understand. They're full of apocalyptic symbolism, and we tend to take stuff literally today. But at the time that the book of Revelation was written, which was approximately 96 AD or so, apocalyptic literature was the norm. People of that time would understand how to interpret it in a way which we would not, much like they probably wouldn't understand our Peppy the Frog memes today. Much of what was written for a Christian audience at that time had to be put in sort of a code so as to avoid further persecution by the Romans. What I'm saying, dear listeners, is that in order to understand what all of John's crazy future visions mean, you must first understand what had happened in Rome in the not-so-distant time before it. Picture it. Rome, Italy, July, 64 AD. It's hot. There's no AC. And even though it's been many years since the death of Christ, Christianity still really isn't a thing in Rome. It's not even going to be legal for almost 250 more years. At this point, Christianity is considered kind of a New Age hipster thing. And Rome's current emperor, Nero Caesar, doesn't like it. Not one bit. So in addition to all the other gross things he likes to do, Nero starts some groovy trends like wrapping Christians in dead animal skins and feeding them to wild dogs. Or crucifying them and hanging them in his garden for decoration. Or turning them into human torches to light the city streets, among other things. Although Jesus had already been crucified, Christian historians of the day all wrote that Nero was indeed the first Roman emperor who persecuted Christians in exceedingly cruel and violent ways. All right, let's back up just a little bit more and do some background on who this Nero dude was. He was the worst, the worst human and the worst Caesar who ever Caesared. Now, you may have thought the worst Caesar was Caligula, but you'd be wrong. It was Nero, Caligula's nephew. At first, he seemed like a cool kid, but then he turned 17 and went off the rails of the crazy train. He poisoned his stepfather and stepbrother to get them out of the way so he could become Rome's youngest emperor. Then he married his stepsister, Octavia. Octavia was, by all accounts, a good and virtuous woman who was loved by all of Rome. So, naturally, Nero hated her. Instead, he had the hots for his buddy's wife, Poppaea. Turns out Papaya and Nero were a good match, kind of like Juliette Lewis and Woody Harrelson in Natural Born Killers. Just nuts about each other and nuts in general. So Nero sends Papaya's husband on some mission to some faraway country just to get him out of the way. And he tries to strangle Octavia a bunch of times, but she's got a wicked strong neck and just refuses to die. In the meantime, Nero's mom is getting like super annoyed by all these shenanigans, so he goes ahead and kills her. And since he can't seem to kill Octavia, he takes the mundane route and divorces her so he can marry Popea, which outrages the citizens of Rome. They protest and they riot. They hold parades in Octavia's honor and erect statues of her. So Nero decides to get back together with Octavia. But at the last second, he changes his mind and has her drown in a boiling hot vapor bath instead. Then he has her body beheaded and her head sent to Popea as a wedding gift. Pure romance. After all that drama dies down, Nero and Pepe get hitched, but he gets tired of her real quick too, especially when she starts nagging him to quit seeing prostitutes on the side or at least slow down with them as she was pregnant and didn't like it when he came trolling home with STDs. Nero responds to his wife's very reasonable request by throwing her to the ground and jumping on her stomach until her and her baby die. Then he feels real bad about it and he kind of gets lonely and starts missing her, so he spies this young slave boy named Sporus, who he thinks kind of sort of looks like Popea. Nero promptly has Sporus castrated, dresses him in Popea's clothes, renames him Empress Popea, and takes poor Sporus out on the town, forcing him to make out in public at plays, restaurants, sporting events. You get the picture. Nero is so adamant that everyone except Sporus is Popea, Empress of Rome, that even after he dies, the next three guys who take over as Roman emperor take Sporus as their wife. At some point, Nero also publicly married a man named Pythagoras, while the emperor himself wore a veil and played the part of the bride. So basically, Nero was the OG Tiger King. Question. If this stuff was going on today, would you not think you were living in end times? Heck, the U.S. Postal Service is losing 30% of our mail, and we think it's end times. We're weak. Anyway, I've given you but a small sample of how Nero treated those closest to him, so you can imagine how he treated the Roman plebs. If you can't imagine, let me just tell you how he treated them. He openly encouraged crime, even prowling the streets himself and beating people up and robbing them just because who's going to stop him? And after he got bored of all that, he set fire to the entire city of Rome, destroying two-thirds of it and killing hundreds of his own people. Just for fun. Just because. He did it. Everyone knows he did it, and people are pissed, especially his military, who have now turned against him. Ancient Rome historian Cassius Dio later said in a quote, there was no curse that the populace did not invoke upon Nero, though they did not mention his name, end quote. By the end of all this, even Nero's close pals were telling them that he needed to commit suicide. And naturally, he's got to be a drama queen about that, too. He tries to poison himself and fails. He tries to drown himself, and he fails at that too. One of his men suggests that he stab himself, and Nero whines that he doesn't really know how, and and he really needs one of them to stab themselves to death first so he can see how to do it correctly. Finally, Nero is handed a knife, but he tosses it aside, proclaiming it too dull to do the job. They hand him another, and he doesn't like that one for one reason or another. In the end, he's got to have his buddies help him stab himself in the neck in some sort of weird assisted suicide thing. And right up to the bitter end, Nero blames the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome. This is the madness that sets the mood for the book of Revelation. If you've made it this far, hang out with me for a few more minutes while I tie up what else was going on that gave rise to the mention of the beast in the good book. Right after Nero commits suicide, his court astrologers bring the woo by predicting that he will one day return. The witches were so convincing that everyone thinks that Nero had botched his third suicide as well and had somehow survived, or even that he'd faked his own death so he could hide out until everyone got over being mad at him for burning up Rome. And then he'd come back and return to power. And this return to power was essentially known as the rise of the Antichrist. Nero, who was the first to torture Christians simply for being Christians, was literally the Antichrist. In the 20 years following his death, at least three different men showed up claiming to be Nero, and they were all promptly put to death. It's a pretty easily dispatched AC, if you ask me. But Nero was so heinous and so utterly terrifying that Christians lived in constant fear that he really would return. Since Nero had no son, the Julio-Claudian dynasty died with him. And for a few years after that, there was just this revolving door of military leaders who conquered Rome, married Sporus, and were assassinated on a pretty regular basis. Eventually, An Italian guy named Vespasian took over Rome and a true royal family was reinstated, the Flavians. Shockingly, Vespasian was not assassinated, but instead died in the middle of an intense diarrhea attack. Very embarrassing. His oldest son Titus then took over as emperor, but he only lasted a couple of years before he died too. There's much debate on whether Titus died of natural causes or if he was poisoned by his plotting little brother, Domitian. Domitian wanted to do things differently than his dad or his brother had, and the Roman Senate did not like this. They saw him as a tyrant. Tyrant or not, Domitian definitely was some sort of marketing genius. He created an imperial Flavian cult specifically designed to inspire the people of Rome to be loyal to him. He created his own publicity team, you guys. It was essentially today's equivalent of buying a million bot followers on Instagram. The cult had a temple and a high priest and they threw festivals to honor Domitian and were like constantly posting about him and stuff. The whole purpose of this cult was to inspire the people of Rome to be loyal to the Flavians. And while Domitian was popular with the public, many Christians were afraid that this was going to turn into a Nero 2.0 situation. And coincidentally or not, this was right around the time that the book of Revelation was written. Now, Let's look at what the book actually says about the beast and the mark. The action starts in Revelation 13, where the beast is described. Actually, it's two beasts. There's this crimson-skinned, Satan-powered beast, and then another beast who's like his hype guy, who just kind of goes around trying to get other people to worship the first beast. Kind of like that guy who stands outside the club trying to get people to come in and hear the featured DJ of the week or like the imperial cult that was formed to hot Emperor Domitian. Revelation 13, 1 and 2 say that the featured DJ Beast has seven heads upon each is written a blasphemous name. It also has ten horns and ten crowns. Don't ask me how seven heads have ten horns. I guess some of the heads are like unicorns. Also, it has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. Why Why though? Anyway, these seven heads likely represent the seven hills that Rome was built upon. And the seven blasphemous names are those of the past seven emperors of Rome. Five who were dead, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, also known as Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The other two heads represent Vespasian and Titus. So now we have a beast with seven heads and seven ugly names, just like the seven past emperors of Rome, all the way up to the current one. Verse 3 says that one of these seven heads has a mortal wound, but that the wound has miraculously healed, and the world's like, what the hell? Sort of like Nero with his mortal wound, which was believed to have been healed because he didn't do a good job trying to commit suicide in the first place. Verses 4 through 10 are general smack talk about what a jerk this beast is, In verse 11, the hot beast makes his appearance. And again, there's a reference to the first beast with a healed head wound, Nero. In verse 13, it says that this beast also makes fire come down from the heavens, just like Nero had rained fire upon Rome. Verse 14 again references the beast with the wound made by a sword, like Nero had. And then he adds that the hot beast actually wants you to go ahead and worship the seven-headed beast's image as well. To prove your loyalty to the beast, you'll have to accept a mark upon your forehead or in your right hand. And verse 16 says that if you want to buy or sell anything, you must have this mark. Now, in those times, a mark was a word for an engraving or a brand, sort of like Nero's or any other Roman emperor's image that was engraved on a coin. During Nero's reign, The Jews revolted against him and began minting their own coinage and did not use the Roman currency that was marked with the image of him. So in the eyes of the Jews, if you held a coin that was engraved with Nero's image, you held allegiance to a beast. I'm not sure what the forehead thing comes in, though, unless they had some sort of fashionable forehead fanny pack type things that you could carry your coins in up there. A further note is the fact that when Domitian was in power, He revalued Roman coinage. So at this time in history, there's a lot of worry about currency and how people will be able to buy and sell things. Speaking of currency, the money shot is actually in verse 18, which says, quote, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. End quote. To me, the words, let him have understanding, are the most important clue regarding the mark of the beast. At the time, the Hebrews used a form of code writing so they could secretly talk crap about the Romans. It was called gematria, and it was the practice of assigning letters numerical values. Kind of like that goofy COVID-19 meme I got on Facebook, only mathematically correct. But when applying gematria to the Hebrew alphabet, the words Nero Caesar is represented numerically as the number 666. Verse 18 couldn't be more clear. Hey, if you understand what I'm laying down and you know how to do gematria and you're in the know, here's the number of the man I'm talking about. Add it up. Count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is. 666. It's Nero Caesar, which is Nero's formal name. Aside from the historical background, here's what you really need to know, because the Bible is very clear about it. Once again, you're not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. You'll have to willingly and knowingly pledge allegiance to some guy who's so annoying that he needs his buddy to convince you to love him, probably because he has seven heads, a bunch of horns, the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. You would not consciously agree to worship this thing simply for the privilege of buying McNuggets. No, you get that weird emo guy that did pledge allegiance to it to do all your shopping for you. You, my friend, simply would not do that. Moving on. Further evidence is reiterated in Revelation 17, verse 9, which says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, we're once again speaking in the secret code language. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. This is a second reference to the seven hills upon which Rome was built on. Verse 10 says, There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So again, the five fallen are Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The head who is, is Vespasian. The one that is not yet is Titus. And remember, Titus only ruled for two years, so he he did only remain for a little while. And the eighth king is the beast himself and is symbolic of this newly revived Lavian Empire under Domitian. No worries, though, because it does say that the Beast King is going to his destruction, and that happens too, because Domitian was eventually assassinated by his own court. So, there you have it, from the mouth of John, the pages of the Bible, and against the backdrop of history itself. My take is that the Book of Revelation was a prediction of what would happen in Rome in the near future, based on a very legitimate fear that the current ruler, Domitian, would turn out to be just like Nero, or worse, or that Nero himself was actually still alive, just like the court astrologers predicted. And after the way he acted, it's no surprise that Nero ended up with a starring role in the scariest book of the Bible. He would have loved that, too. Such a drama queen. In conclusion, the Mark of the Beast and the Beast himself were likely metaphors for the Roman Empire and not really literal predictions about the future, or our current present some 2,000 years later. But there are those who disagree with me and believe that what is written in the book of Revelation has not yet come to pass. And that's okay. Maybe they're right. There's certainly some wild things going on in the world right now, but honestly, the same can be said for hundreds of points throughout history, both in our lifetimes and before. I can think of at least a dozen times that the end of the world was predicted in a time that I've been alive alone. But the Bible also said that no one will be able to accurately predict the end of the world. So we really should stop trying to. Life is short. Let's just try to act right and enjoy our time while we can. Or in the words of the modern-day philosopher Bill S. Preston Esquire, be excellent to each other and stop sharing those memes. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much. It's everything. If you haven't already, please go follow us on Instagram at Podcast. And if you want to be the most helpfulest, please go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's something weird or creepy or strange that you'd like me to investigate and report back to you on, drop me an email at odditypoddity at gmail.com. That's O D D I T Y. P-O-D-D-I-T-Y at gmail.com. See y'all next time.